This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Over the weekend, a third detainee at the Cook County Jail died after showing signs of COVID-19, and hundreds at the jail have contracted COVID-19, from inmates to correctional officers and medical staff. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox has said she's deeply concerned about this growing problem. On March 20th, she halted prosecution of narcotics and cannabis cases. She's working with the sheriff and the public defender to keep people who are not an immediate threat to public safety out of jail. And she joins us now. State's Attorney Fox, welcome back to Reset. Thank you for having me, Jen. Good morning. So before we address the steps your office is taking to fight COVID-19, I'd like your reaction to the sheer number of cases we're seeing in the county jails. Sheriff Tom Dart's office reports nearly 500 people there have contracted the virus. It's a stunning number. It is stunning, and it is quite awful uh, for the detainees, the, the families, uh, the people who work there and their families. Uh, it is, as you describe a place where social distancing is almost impossible. And so for the people who work there and are required to stay there, it is horrifying every day that we see these numbers. Talk about the steps you're taking to reduce the jail population. What role do you play here? You know, at the very beginning, even before the court shut down, uh, the public defender and I uh, got together and said, are there people that we can absolutely agree uh, should not be there, that the offenses on which they are charged Uh, would not warrant them to be there absent a bond. And so we began working in earnest, uh, starting on March 12th, looking and reviewing folks who should come before the courts. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the public defender filed a motion in which Judge Evans ruled that they could uh, do mass reviews of detainees. And we've been participating in, in that. So for the last almost four weeks, our attorneys have been working around the clock, reviewing bonds, of those who have been at the jail agreeing in cases where we believe people should be released. Um, And in those cases where we uh, disagree, having those cases heard before a judge. So in in even doing another review after uh, initial reviews were done for people who continue to remain there. And so we remain committed uh, to making sure that we're balancing public health and public safety and trying to decarcerate uh, to the degree that the conditions there can improve. Well, the Cook County jail population has decreased significantly in recent weeks. It's down to just over 4,400 detainees. It's about 1,100 less than a month ago. Do you feel like that's enough at this point? You know, I think what you said earlier, prisons and jails are not designed uh, to accommodate people during a pandemic. And so 
the concern is, will it ever be enough? And what we're trying to do is do as much as we can, given the circumstances that we have, to make the conditions safe for everyone who is residing there and who works there. Uh, the numbers I just got, um, just as we were speaking from today's count, were about at 4,300 in 67, which is a 22% decrease in, in a month, um, which I think is is a vast improvement. But again, these are conditions where in as much as you try to do social distancing, there will always be a public health concern. So for those remaining detainees and staff who are working at the jail, what can your office do from here on out to try to build in better protections? The maintenance of the jail certainly falls under the purview of the sheriff, and there have been requirements that have been set forth uh, by the federal courts just last week around sanitation and health and safety concerns for the people who live there. I think one of the things that we can continue to do from the state's attorney's side is make sure that we are not adding to a population um, that is already reeling uh, by sending people to the Cook County Jail for things that could be dealt with outside of the jail. I think some of the innovations that we've seen uh, working with local law enforcement are, for example, citations on misdemeanor cases where historically those people would come for a bond hearing. They're now giving a ticket and a time to come back, using our resources to make sure that only those who are a threat to public safety are referred to that jail. Our goal is to make sure that we can continue to decrease that population to keep everyone there safe. Well, your office last month said it would quit prosecuting low-level drug offenses during the COVID-19 outbreak. A press release said the reasons included public health and a reduction in narcotics evidence testing by Illinois State Police Labs. What would need to happen for you to resume those low-level drug prosecutions? You know, we are looking at all of the things on the table. With low-level drug prosecutions, what we find, most of the people that we were prosecuting were people with addiction issues. We were talking about people who were possessors, not people who um, were kingpins, if you will. And those people, we believe from the very beginning, even before this crisis, were people who needed treatment and not jail. And so I think the lessons that we will learn from this as we look at a post-COVID world are, are there things that we can do for this population that include treatment and not incarceration? But to be clear, there are some cases that we will continue to look at and ask the state police uh, to test if we're talking about significant volumes uh, of narcotics. Uh, and, and the state police has agreed to do that. But what we have seen is an overwhelming majority of cases that have come before the state's attorney's office have been low-level, nonviolent drug offenses with people who are dealing with addiction issues that should not be criminalized. And what is the threshold there? What triggers um, more scrutiny of a case? How, how much product does someone have to have? <laughs> It's a subjective standard, if you will. For example, there was a case where someone had 50 pounds of marijuana outside of Trump Tower a couple of weeks ago. 50 pounds suggests to me that you are not someone who has an addiction issue, but perhaps an enterprise that you're furthering. Um, and so that that becomes clearer. But it really is, you know, looking to see, is this someone who is a driver of violence? Is this is this amount something that will cause harm or invite um gun activity as, as it's related to that. Um, but again, when we look at our data, even before the COVID-19 crisis, 
hit, what we were seeing were a significant amount of people coming into the justice system for drug charges because of possession or small amount of sales, people who that was their economy, um, who could be dealt with outside of the justice system rather than inside. At the same time, if the lack of prosecution on these crimes goes on for several more months, do you see any increased risks to the public? You know, we want to continue to monitor it. I think that there have been concerns that have been raised, for example, uh, on the West side, where there are people who are concerned about open air drug markets. And we want to make sure that that is not also happening. But I think this gives us a real opportunity to be able to look at alternatives, to be able to say, you know, what can we be doing instead of? Why wait until COVID is over to now say, let's go back to what we were doing before? I think this has exposed, whether it's the disparities in in the deaths uh, in Black communities versus others, uh, the need for additional resources and supports around healthcare, around economics in the neighborhoods that are largely impacted by drug sales. And so my hope is, it's not that we're waiting to this to be over, to go back to the days of old, but using this as an opportunity uh, to provide the proper supports for communities that have been hit by COVID and uh, by a war on drugs. Well, earlier this month, civil rights groups petitioned a federal judge to mandate immediate mass release of inmates to protect the lives and slow the spread of COVID-19. On Thursday, that request was denied. How feasible is a quote-unquote mass release? You know, we have to, in all of this, make sure that we're maintaining uh, the balance between public health and public safety. We believe it's important to review these cases individually. There are people who are there accused of crimes of violence. You know, there are victims and survivors who are impacted by these decisions. There are some people who are charged with offenses where we believe that they are, in fact, a danger to the public. That being said, just because they are charged with those offenses, they are presumed innocent until found guilty, and they are afforded a right to be in conditions that are safe and healthy. And so that's the balance, that even if someone has to be there because they are a threat to public safety, we absolutely must also make sure that their health um, is maintained. State's Attorney Fox, as part of our coverage on the consequences of COVID-19, Reset has checked in with advocates for survivors of domestic violence. And, and here's what one said about this moment. Let's listen. Because of social distancing and because people are being told to really isolate in their homes as much as possible, we're seeing that abusers are preventing their partners from seeking medical attention, potentially prohibiting them from leaving the home and going to work. And so it's really those threats of continued power and control over their partner um, that are just really being intensified at this time. I mean, many victims of domestic violence have to very carefully, methodically plan on when they are going to reach out for help. And with the perpetrators being on site all the time, that increases the power and control. And so there's probably even more monitoring over their use of their cell phone and more monitoring over the use of their computers. So it's really difficult. That was Carol Gall, executive director of Sarah's Inn, and Stephanie Love Patterson, executive director of Connections for Abused Women and Their Children. And about one in four women experience domestic violence at some point in their lives. Your office helps people experiencing domestic violence. Walk us through the steps you're, you're taking to halt this problem. They've articulated it very well. We have a, a situation right now where domestic violence survivors 
are locked in place with their abusers. And what we know about domestic violence um, circumstances in which, you know, there's a high stress level. So now we know a lot of people have lost their jobs. We also know that, you know, mental health issues um, become particularly acute. If people are drinking, they're likely drinking more now. If they're using drugs or abusing drugs more now, and you just have an environment whereby people are trapped and, and find it difficult to escape. Uh, so the, some of the things that we are doing, one, are reminding people that though most of the criminal court activities have closed, domestic violence courts are still open, uh, that people can and should, if they need an emergency order of protection, come to the courthouses to be able to petition to do that. Emergency orders of protection are still being heard on a daily basis. We are also working with our law enforcement partners uh, to make sure that should someone reach out, should, for example, you know, there's an instance of domestic violence and someone comes to the home, the police come to the home and the abuser has left, that we've put protocols in place to be able to work with our law enforcement partners to get arrest warrants. Uh, the state's attorney's office uh, victim witness line uh, continues to be open at 773-674-7200 to be able to take those calls and refer uh, to resources. Sources. Uh, we also are working with the advocacy community to make sure that people are aware of what resources are available. Uh, the sad reality is, is we know that there are likely more incidents of domestic violence happening, but the calls aren't reflective of that because of the power and control that is being exercised in the home that would even allow for survivors to call. So we're being mindful of that and reminding people that our doors are open to survivors. Well, I want to switch text a little bit and, and talk about an incident that occurred uh, this weekend. Uh, Northbrook-based Hillco Redevelopment Partners demolished an old smokestack that sent an enormous dust cloud through the little village neighborhood on Chicago's southwest side. And as you know, illnesses like asthma and other respiratory distress can exponentially multiply the fatalities from COVID-19. What was your reaction to what happened this weekend? And is your office taking a look at it? I think I was like most others and was horrified uh, at the timing of this. And I know that there will be conversations about the fact that this was already pre-authorized, but we already know about the the politics of uh, racial environmentalism, the fact that these types of actions, particularly in communities of color, have left uh, those communities vulnerable. And right now, in the midst of a respiratory virus uh, that is attacking those with underlying conditions like asthma, particularly in communities of color, this was what I found to be, at a minimum, appallingly uh, tone deaf. But more than that, uh, particularly dangerous for people in those communities. And so, you know, it is an evolving uh, issue. It has just happened over the course of the last couple of days. And I know that um, our office and others are looking into it. Because they can't socially distance like the rest of us, first responders like fire and police are on the front lines of this crisis. As a result, dozens have fallen ill. How are you collaborating with CPD in this moment? Well, you know, I, first and foremost, that it is important to remind people that even as we talk about the conditions at the jail, um, that there the conditions on the front lines are are also hazardous. We've lost two veteran police officers to COVID in the last several weeks. Their work approaching people in certain circumstances 
puts them at risk. Also why we are looking at the way that we are prosecuting cases and what cases need to come forward so that we can keep our law enforcement officers healthy and safe as well. And so we've been talking over the course of the last several weeks, again, about practices uh, related to what cases can we and should we be pursuing at this time? What are the efforts that we can take uh, to make sure that our frontline law enforcement partners are not putting themselves unnecessarily in harm's way to continue to do the things that we had done them pre-COVID. And so as with those who have lost their lives at the detention center, we also um, honor the lives of those who are lost in the line of duty, um, having to do this work in this current environment. And as you know, we have a likely new incoming CPD superintendent, David Brown, city council is set to vote on his appointment on Wednesday. Have you had a chance to speak with him and, and understand his values when it comes to law enforcement? I did speak with him uh, briefly before he was formally announced uh, by the city And I'd had an opportunity to um, look at his career over the past couple of years uh, because of his work in Dallas County. I think what is really encouraging, and and WBZ has reported about this, is his knowledge and understanding about mental health, uh, that we have a significant mental health issue um, in our criminal justice system. And I think our approaches need to catch up with the times. And his experience with that, both personal and at the Dallas Police Department, give me strong encouragement that he is the man for the times here in Chicago. Well, down the line, when we're on the other side of this pandemic and Cook County gets back to whatever the new normal is, you'll obviously face a backlog of cases. Will you need additional resources to get caught up? And if so, where will you get the funds for that? You know, we're going to take it uh, day by day. The fact of the matter is we have the largest unified court system in the world, and we have not uh, had to address anything like this in our history. You know, a snow day here or there uh, has a strong ripple effect. The fact that the courts will have been down for two months uh, will present quite a challenge. We want to make sure that we're protecting the constitutional rights of the accused, those who have been awaiting trial over this time, the rights of victims to be able to seek justice for their cases that they have pending, and to be able to do this work um, efficiently and thoroughly. And so we are constantly working and talking as an office about how we will roll back into this process, but recognizing that all of that hinges upon uh, circumstances outside of our control. So we'll take it day by day and hopefully get the resources that we need to be able to do it. Well, as we wrap up, I want to share a question we've put to listeners in, in recent days. You know, this pandemic is tough. It's killing people. It's disrupting how we live. It's really highlighting some of the inequities that exist in Chicago and beyond. In this environment, what gives you hope? I am quarantined with four teenage girls. And yes, that is, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) And and it is um, sometimes frustrating, but also what gives me the most hope. I think the conversations that we have had with them about the disparities um, in who is living and who is dying from this disease, about the privilege of being able to shelter in place and have enough space and food and resources and the realization that there are others who are suffering um, at disproportionate rates and that sheltering in place is not an option for them, has allowed for me to see this younger generation 
really be attuned to social justice issues in a way that is real. It's not in a book. It's not something that they're just seeing in social media. They're living it. And so I'm hopeful that once we are able to emerge from this, that there are new generations of folks who will take up these issues like paid sick leave, like a minimum wage that is affordable for people who are out on the front lines. My girls are talking about that in a way that I had been trying to talk to them for uh, months about Mm -hmm. uh, that they are bringing to me. It's not fair that the people at Jewel don't get paid what they need to get paid, um, my youngest said to me. And that is what heartens me in this, is that after we emerge from this, that there are going to be a new generation of fighters adding to the fight for social justice. And that's today's Reset. All this week, we're bringing you some of our public officials to find out what they and their offices are working on during this COVID-19 outbreak. Watch your feed every day for these new conversations. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.